Hello, and welcome to Top Hole, the podcast about Eleanor and Brent Dyer, the chalet school, and anything vaguely connected to them. I'm Deborah Lofus, and I'm a fan. Please refer to episode zero for the usual provisos with respect to pronunciation, spoilers, and bonkersness. In September 1990, a new magazine appeared for fans of light literature for the young, abbreviated to Folly. Edited by Sue Sims and Belinda Copson, issue one of Folly was printed and distributed at their own expense, but met with immediate success, having 80 subscribers by the time of issue two a few months later. If 80 subscribers doesn't sound very many, remember that this was in the pre-digital age. This was a paper magazine, available by subscription only, publicised by people telling other people about it, at book fairs and in passing correspondence. There was no internet and no email, and mobile phones were the size of a brick and known as car phones because you needed a car to carry one, so they were mainly used on construction sites. If you wanted to talk to somebody far away, you had to call them, using the phone fixed to your house wall. If your friend wasn't there, they probably didn't have one of those newfangled answering machines, so you'd have to try again later. Telephoning was also expensive so most communication was by the, at that time, much cheaper method of writing letters and posting them. In this context, to have reached 80 people within a matter of weeks is a really impressive achievement, and indicative of the quality and entertainment Folly provided from the start. Folly was not the first, or only one, of this sort of fanzine to be published. Other societies and newsletters about children's literature were springing up at around the same time but they tended to focus on a single author and were generally quite respectful in tone. What made Folly different was the breadth of its brief. It covered pretty well all children's books and the range of its content. In any given issue, you would find clericues and limericks, scholarly articles and biographies, fan fiction and parody. There was the Awful Book Award and Desert Island Books and the, and this is the vaguely connected element necessary for this podcast, Chalet Corner. The final issue of Folly arrived in the winter of 2012, and it is still much missed by fans of children's books. Today I'm talking to Sue Sims, who as well as editing Folly magazine, also co-wrote the Encyclopedia of Girls' School Stories, was Antonia Forrest's literary executor, and if you haven't heard of Antonia Forrest, do run and find out, and was at one point aiming to collect every school story ever written. Hello! Hello! And did you succeed in collecting all the school stories there are i still have a wants list put it like that <laughs> right well everybody has a wants list don't they the problem with my wants list is that it only has the books on that i haven't got that i know about and every now and then someone writes or phones or emails or something says to have you come across this one because it's not in the encyclopedia but with any <laughs> luck i can say well it's not in the encyclopedia because it's not a school story but sometimes it is one that we just hadn't heard of and I haven't got. So, yeah. So, no, I definitely haven't got uh, all girls' school stories. If if you count uh, guide book stories, which I also collect, and the adult school stories, which I don't really collect, but I buy when they come up, you know, I've got somewhere around 2,300 of the things. Folly. So I've said in my introduction you had 80 subscribers after a fortnight. How many did you get up to in the end? Just under 500. It never quite reached the 500 mark, unfortunately. Before it got there, people started dying. 
Well, you know, it always appealed to the nostalgia market. That means we have quite a lot of people in their sort of late 70s, 80s, early 90s, and people do die. Also, people are working, they're subscribing, and then they retire, and they suddenly think, whoa, I'll have to draw my horns in a bit here. So they start cancelling subscriptions. Folly tended to be the last one to go, but we did have people saying, sorry, just can't afford you because, you know, I'm retired. It was a big commitment for you, though, actually producing it. Tell me about that. Well, yes, at the very beginning, the first issue went out in 1990. And we had a computer. It, it was an amazing computer. We got the very first computer that we ever had in 1985. And that was because we were also running um, and carried on running, in fact, until just over a year ago, a general knowledge competition for schools. And we used to produce the questions on, on the computer. The first computer we had was called an Atari 500. The 500 meant that there were, the, the RAM, you know, the, the, the memory, mm -hmm. was um, 500 or 512 kilobytes, half a megabyte. It was a different world. And then about after about three or four years, we, um, we upgraded and we got the, uh, the Atari 1000, which had a whole megabyte of memory. And that is what Folly was first produced on. Well, for starters, it only had one font, uh, and that was Courier, you know, the typewriting font. So the early magazines were all look as though they were typewritten. And they all had pictures in from the very beginning. But the way I used to have to do the pictures mm. was that they mostly came from old annuals. Yeah. And I would take a, an annual into school mm. and I would photocopy the various pictures I thought I might want to use. I, I'd make about five different copies of each picture at different uh, sizes because yeah. then what I would do, uh, I would actually print out mm. the initial draft and then I would place the picture uh, at the different sizes on the draft and then I would go back to the computer and I would change each line so that it actually yeah. went around the picture it would take me a couple of hours to do a picture because I would then find that I'd used the wrong size picture so I had to get the next size up or down redo the whole thing and so on so yes those early follies took a long long time mm -hmm. that's a massive labor of love I mean that really is yeah <laughs> It wasn't always love, I can tell you. <laughs> so when we finally got our first Macintosh, that that was like a new world because you could buy a program called PageMaker, which Adobe produced. With PageMaker, you could actually tell it to go around the picture. No scanners in those days, at least not not for private people like me. Uh, so I still had to do the photocopying, mm. but I would then stick it onto the page and then get PageMaker to draw the stuff around. And those early follies were all photocopied uh, rather than printed. Uh, my husband did it at work. So he would just take those pages in with the, the pictures stuck on mm. and photocopy them like that. And then we'd have to fold them all and staple them all and all the rest of it. It got mm. easier and easier with each successive application. By the end, mm. when I was using InDesign, 
very powerful program. You can get it to do anything you want very, very fast. So paradoxically, it was taking me far shorter time to do each folly, but I was still, unfortunately, mm. getting having to give more and more apologies for late issues. I'm sure you'll remember, any reader of Folly will remember the apologies. It was famous for its apologies. I noticed today looking through them that the first one is in issue two. There's an apology in there for something or other. And I just thought, oh, that started quite early then. Oh, I'll tell you what that was. That was nothing to do with being late or anything. That was because in the very first issue, uh, I had an article about, um, basically, it was about different places you could buy secondhand school stories. And we made a reference to the most expensive of the then dealers. Um, They were very good in that they had a lot of excellent uh, stock, but they did charge a lot of money by the standards of the day. And um, Folly came out, and about two weeks later, I got a solicitor's letter saying this was libelous and saying that we would be prosecuted for libel unless we published an apology in the next issue of Folly. So we published an apology in the next issue of Folly. Yeah. So Folly was nearly scuppered before it began then. Good Lord. You didn't get any more letters like that from anybody, did you? No, no, we were quite careful not to make any claims about uh, (laughs) (laughs) doing that. And anyway, it it was quite um, fairly quickly, Clifford and Eunice's prices became pretty cheap by the standards of some other dealers who came. Oh, right. There There was one lady whose name I will not actually say, just in case she's watching this podcast. Um, who used to charge the most eye-stretching prices. But she also paid very high prices, which meant she got the most amazing stock. You know, Abbey books that you'd never, you didn't know anyone who had them. There they were. Okay, she was asking 400 quid for them, but, you know, they were there. And, of course, prices kept going up for ages and ages and ages until they started coming down again. Was that because of the, the reprints? I mean, like Girls Gone By and people like that. Three reasons. One, certainly the reprints. I mean, are you going to pay £500 for a book, first edition, admittedly with Dust Wrapper, very beautiful, when you can pay sort of £12.99 paperback? The thing is, an awful lot of the people who read Folly mm. and a lot of the people who still love school stories, I wouldn't really call them collectors exactly. That's not meant to be an insult. They're readers. They want the books. They don't really care whether they're paperbacks, hardbacks, first editions, reprints, whatever, as long as the text is there. No, I know what you mean. Yes, they're readers. They're more interested in the words than the actual physical book. You know, I I respect that. Mm. Um, It would have saved me a lot of money if I could have joined their merry throng, to Mm. be honest. All right, so reprints brought prices down. What else contributed to prices coming down? Second one and the third one, they're connected, is what I mentioned before, the age of the readers. We are mostly middle-aged and elderly now. Mm. There's a handful of youngsters, so to speak, who come in. And up until about 2000, I think it was, we did actually get quite a lot of younger people, people in their 20s and 30s, because they were the ones who were buying the Armada reprints, which were still being, HarperCollins was still bringing those out until I think somewhere very late 90s or 2000, something like that. And then, of course, that was it. They stopped. Mm. Girls Gone By, they started reprinting chalets 
somewhere around 2003, four, something like that. But they were very much aimed at collectors. Uh, they weren't aimed at, at people just wandering into their local bookshop and thinking, oh, that looks fun. So people die. And then the third thing, which is obviously connected to the second thing, is that when they die, their books come onto the market. And school stories, like everything else in our world, well, most other things, have the same, they're subject to the same rules as everything else. So the greater the demand, the more expensive it's going to be. The smaller the supply, the more expensive it's going to be. So where you have less demand because people are dying mm. and a larger supply because their books are coming onto the market, the price is going to come down. So only only sort of five or six years ago, uh, people were still asking, oh, 150, 160 quid for Chalet School Reunion, for example. Mm, mm. Nowadays, I think you'd be lucky, if it's not a signed copy or something like that, you'd be lucky, I think, to get sort of 60 or 70 pounds for a decent copy. That's interesting. My my sister bought me a copy of Reunion oh. in its dust jacket for my 50th birthday which was a really lovely, lovely present to get. Absolutely. Do you know how much you spent on it? No, I don't. No, but now you've given me an idea. I can't ask, no. <laughs> it also depends, of course, where you buy it. There are one or two places, particularly Rose's Bookshop in, um, or are they Tintern? They're, they were Cellar and Rose's Bookshop, and they had a branch in Tintern in, uh, just over the border in Wales. And um, Rose's Bookshop, which was in Hay on Wye. But Rose's shut down a few years back and all their stock went over to Stella's. It was the same uh, owner. Mm. Uh, but they are still charging pretty high prices. Mm. And, of course, if you go online and go on to something like ABE, you will get probably a very skewed impression of what books are worth because they wouldn't be on ABE if they were, generally speaking, the right price because someone would have bought them. Okay, I've nearly finished my collecting. I wanted everything by EBD, which I've now got, and all the fill-ins I collect as well because I really like those. Um, what do you still need? There's not much else because I got the four Judith Gray books, that little set, because they were really nice. The Highcliffe books by Sylvia Little. Oh, yes. I'm not sure how many of those there are because uh, every time I look at it, I, I count differently. Um mm. Must be about ten or so, I suppose. And of course, he wrote he wrote quite a number of others. Uh, he he was quite keen on series, not all as long as Highcliffe, but um, Stanton's. He wrote several um, Castle School. Um, they're all quite similar. I mean, if you like Highcliffe, you could you could try some of the other Sylvia Littles. No, because then I'd end up collecting more books, and that's what of we're trying not to do. <laughs> I have run out of shelf space. I've only got uh, space on my shelves at the moment because my entire Malcolm Savile collection is with my auntie. And so is it book collecting that prompted you to start Folly? Uh, well, yeah, it, it was very specifically the chalet school. Back, back in 1988 or nine, uh, we were living in Birmingham and uh, Jill Bilski wrote or phoned or whatever you did in those days instead of emailing and asked if I could get in touch with a lady called Belinda Copson, who also lived in Birmingham and also collected chalet books. And she has various holes in her collection. And um, Jill knew that I had them all. So asked if I'd be prepared to lend them. I said, of course. So Belinda came round to my house and we got talking about chalet books and, and various other things. And we, we agreed that, 
it was a bit irritating that while Australia, Anne Mackie Hunter lived in Australia in those days, uh, had produced um, a magazine called Friends of the Chalet School. And I think New Zealand had one. Um, I think South Africa as well, but I'm not sure about that. But we didn't have anything at all in uh, in the UK. So there and then we said, right, you know, we will produce um, a fanzine for chalet mm. collectors. And then I said, well, you know, it might not just be chalet because I've broadened it out a bit and just make it sort of girls' school stories generally. So Belinda said, fine. And that's what we did. So she, um, Belinda produced a couple of articles. Uh, I think mm. she did one on the girls' own paper and one on possibly schoolgirls' own. I'd need to go and check. And I did a variety of articles. Um, we published it. I sent, um, I suppose you'd call it the specimen copy, really. I was also selling, as I did for, for years before mm. and afterwards, selling school stories and children's books generally. Addicts always become dealers if they can. So anyway, I sent a copy to everybody on my mailing list. And there were 120 people on my mailing list. And 80 of them basically wrote back and said, yes, we will subscribe. That's how it started. That's excellent. Because it's all there from the start, that mix of mm. funny stuff and research and more scholarly stuff as well. I think it was Folly's trademark, really, being able to mix the two. It was simultaneously heavyweight and lightweight. Yes. And the thing is, of course, that the one thing that you were not quite accurate uh, in your introduction was um, you said that uh, Fans of Light Literature for the Young was abbreviated to Folly. It was the other way around. Oh, right. <laughs> we got the acronym first and then decided what it was going to stand for. Because all the way we said this is going to be serious. There's also going to be a lot of silliness as well. Because however serious you are as a collector, you have to admit that an awful lot of the, the, the school stories and stuff is absolute rubbish, really. You know, yeah. we, rubbish we enjoy. Yeah. And there is some very good stuff there as well. But yes. um, do you know Sturgeon's Law? No. Okay. Uh, Theodore Sturgeon was um, an American science fiction writer. And he produced this law which was originally intended to apply just to science fiction, but actually, he, he, as he pointed out himself, it could apply to absolutely everything, which is 95% of anything is crap. So it doesn't really matter what, what you, whether you're looking at um, school stories or science fiction or movies or television or politicians well, we, you know, actually, politicians, I think, might... <laughs> it might be a bit really. higher, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, a little bit higher. But, yeah, 95% of any any area, any genre, whatever, is not going to be particularly mm. good. Because once it becomes established and people start buying it, they'll buy anything, mm. you know. And a lot of the people who produce it are not particularly good. They're not good writers or good filmmakers or whatever it happens to be. I would say probably of my collection, which, as I say, is well over 2,000 uh, books now, perhaps drawing a figure out of nowhere, about 10 authors out of about 480 authors are good. They're good writers. They would be good in whatever genre they wrote. And some of them, of course, did write in other genres as well. You know, if you're reading someone like mm. Antonio Forrest 
Winifred Darch, Josephine Elder. I would probably add in someone like um, a very minor author. Mm. She didn't write very much, called Dorothy Vickery. Uh, and and they're good. They're they're good writers. They know what they're doing. Most of the rest are writing school stories because they sold, and they weren't necessarily particularly wonderful writers. I mean, you, you're talking about the Highcliffe books. Eric Leyland, not a particularly wonderful writer. Amusing at times. Very repetitive. He was a journalist, mm. but he found in the end it was uh, he get more money just about from writing books. And he produced them at a huge rate, under huge numbers of pen names mm. as well. But, I mean, he wrote books for boys, he wrote books for girls. I don't know how many books he produced, hundreds. Not quite up to the Enid Blyton level of, of production. I was just thinking, she's always top when it comes to numbers of books, isn't it? But that, of course, is partly because so many of her books are really short. But she would produce something like a famous five book, would take her about three weeks. And those are reasonably long books. And, of course, someone like Eric Leyland would generally... Uh, not worry too much about royalties. Um, he'd produce a book, sell it to the publisher, then get on with writing the next one. What about EBD? How did she do? Well, she started off just selling stuff outright. When she got to know Phyllis Matthewman, uh, her husband, uh, Sydney, started up a, a literary agency and he certainly negotiated pretty decent royalties. Whether she was getting any royalties before that, I don't know. I In the 20s and 30s, very, very few uh, children's mm. writers got royalties. The only one I know who absolutely definitely did was Christine Chandler, and that was because she was in the business. She worked for um, she worked for Castle, the publishers who produced mm. Little Folks, and um, she was an editor. You know, she she knew exactly how everything worked. So from very early on, when she started writing her own books, mm. uh, I've got photocopies of all her account books. She started getting royalties uh, from definitely from about 1924 because she she demanded them. Her literary agents were Christine Moore, who were one of the really really big and still are. I mean, they're, they're still going, and they they were they had um, Graham Greene and Evelyn Waugh and people like that on their books. And Christine Chandler. Oh wow, so that puts her at another level, doesn't it? Yes. Yes. So, and other other writers were certainly getting royalties. I think it's in the introduction to the encyclopedia. Uh, Hillary managed to turn up a letter uh, in the OUP archives to Dorita Fairley Bruce about that boarding school girl. And that boarding school girl is what late twenties, I think, early thirties, mm. somewhere around twenty nine, nine twenty nine. Um, and they were planning to bring out um, a new edition and sell it more cheaply than the first edition. And she, what they've got in their files is her reply, where she's basically saying that, uh, yes, the royalties are going to be less on that edition, but she doesn't mind because they'll probably sell more copies. Although when Joey Bettany gets her first book published, she just talks about selling the copyright. There's no mention of royalties, which does suggest that might be the arrangement EBD was used to. What I think tended to happen was that you sold your first book and subsequent, you know, the next two or three years, uh, and they were outright sales. And then if you knew what you were doing or you had someone decent to represent you, you could then start saying, look, um, I want royalties. And if your books were selling well, the publishers would give you royalties because they wanted to keep you on board. And I'm fairly sure that that's what happened with um, with Chambers and with EBD, because, of course, 
they carried on publishing her, uh, and not just the Chalet books. She did go with some with other publishers for some of her books, um, but mostly either specialist ones, like those rather tacky evangelical ones, the religious ones, yes, where obviously they had commissioned her. But early on, before Lutterworth were Lutterworth, they were RTS, GOP, a religious, religious Tract Society, uh, and they published things like Caroline II and they both liked dogs and so on. I have no idea whether she would have got royalties for those or not. She she wasn't very organised in her... I think she wasn't very organised. I don't think you need to go any further than that, to be honest. Well, she tried to be organised. She kept lists of, of forms, you know, all her forms, things like that. It's just I think she didn't bother to consult them. But I'm fairly sure she would have kept um, notes of... Uh, you know, accounts and things like that. I know there was a huge, huge chest that uh, Helen McClelland inherited, effectively. Um, when EBD died, her stuff went to Phyllis Matthewman. And then when Phyllis died, to Chloe Rutherford, her niece. And Helen got all this stuff from Chloe Rutherford. Uh, before Chloe's death, I mean, that's where she got a lot of the information when she did um, Behind the Chalet School. Uh, you'll remember that Phyllis Matthewman and her husband Sydney shared a house with Brent Dyer for the last yes. few years of her life. Although, from what I can gather, they never actually liked each other that much. Oh, that's a bit bizarre. I think Brent Dyer was quite difficult to like, really. Mm. I know that Helen got a lot of the information she used in her biography behind the Chalet School from, you know, all the notes and everything that she inherited. Mm. So, so, Where is it now, then? Helen's children, presumably. I don't know, actually. And I don't think her daughters were particularly interested in uh, Brent Dyer at all. Mm -hmm. It was printed somewhere like Seven Stories. You can send, uh, authors can send, or their heirs can send um, manuscripts or anything, you know, related to the author to Seven Stories. Um, it's also uh, a research, obviously a research place. Anyone can go if they have uh, legitimate research interests and look up and have a look at manuscripts, typescripts, uh, correspondence, mm. anything like that. And uh, it's also a visitor's centre, so you can actually go and visit it and, and oh, see. how fab. Yeah. We were also talking about how disorganised EBD was. <laughs> but yeah. I was thinking in the writing sense because it's very interesting when she describes other people writing like Joey. And and Joey just lets the story, lets the characters speak, and and makes lists of everybody, and then never consults them again. And you just do get the impression that's how EBD wrote, isn't it? She's describing exactly her she own writing process. Yeah, there, she is. She is. I I think that for people who wrote school story series, it or any series actually, it's not just school stories, but school stories perhaps much more than say adventure books or something like that. Because with school stories, you've got so many characters. Mm. You've got your main characters, but you've also got the people who are just going to perhaps be mentioned once or twice. Yes, you know, your background artists. Absolutely. Staff, parents, whatever. So without lists, you, you could be absolutely stuck. Even with lists, as you've seen with Brent Dyer, I mean, yeah. You need a card index e system, not lists. <laughs> 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 yes, I don't think admin was her forte. Oh dear. I love her Absolutely dearly. But... And the admin for folly, was that what Daphne took over in the end? 
Yes, that's right. Belinda, um, Belinda and I ran it between us um, for quite a long time. Quite a long time, yeah. It worked well into the two thousands, I think. And then Belinda, she had a her family. She also started work because she'd been at home for, for mm. a while, and also she got more and more interested in historical fiction. Mm. And the school stories and Brent Dyer sort of took a bit of a back seat, really. So that's when Daphne came in. And um, because I'd always done all the editing and the membership stuff, and Belinda had done all the the finances and that sort of area. Mm. So Daphne took over the finances and we got Jan Owen. Uh, oh, yes, for- I remember Jan. Yeah, bless her. Um, She's still going strong, hmm. and uh, she's and she just uh, took over the the miscellaneousy sort of stuff hmm. that along with doing a magazine. It was mostly Daphne and me, and Daphne was amazingly efficient. She used to do the accounts for about fifty million different voluntary organisations, <laughs> um, and uh, she was just incredible. I was sorry to end it, but. It was getting too much, really. Mm. I was slowing down. As you get older, you do slow down. I was also still doing a school's challenge. I was teaching and um, doing quite a lot of stuff for uh, the music at church. And Mm. all those things together meant that Folly was just, uh, I don't know, it was just getting delayed more and more. Mm. Mm. But also by then, 2012, there were other ways for fans to yes. be in touch, be in contact, you know, that's very true. Was a thing, very true. And I should think you got tired of people saying, "So when's Folly getting a website and stuff?" Like you yes. know, yeah, it has got a website now. Yeah. Paradoxically, oh, right. <laughs> so I will send you the link to the Folly website. Theoretically, I keep it updated, but in fact, I don't very much because I keep forgetting how to do it. And I will say as well, there are a lot of. Um, copies uh, of folly which i can still send out to people if anyone's interested i I did have the sort of vague idea that i might get them all online but um if everything's online i'm not sure i'd like people to sort of pay a little towards it Mm. but i I have no idea how to set that up and uh, and it'd be nice because there was a lot of good stuff in folly and a lot mm. of funny stuff as well. And that's nice to have some good-natured, light-hearted stuff on the internet. Yeah. I think there's enough of it at the moment. The best stuff often was in the Christmas specials. Yeah. Deirdre Where... Duster Extraordinaire. <laughs> which, of course, is now a book. Yes, which I have a copy of. In fact, I think I have two yeah. copies of for some reason. Yes, yes. I thoroughly enjoyed. Kay is still selling them. Although I think you have to email her specifically to uh, put in No, no, no. I contacted her via Facebook. I think, mm. which is also quite a useful meeting place for Facebook is lovely. Souls. Yes, yeah. absolutely. I'm on a lot of different Facebook groups because um, mm. there are several. There's um, there's not there's there's the new chalet school. There's not the chalet school uh, finishing school. There's chalet school so sales and wants. Yes. Then there's a Dorita Fairley Bruce group. There's there's an uh, Abbey Elsie Oxenham group. Mm. There's um, Monica Edwards group, Malcolm Savile group as well. There's um, oh, there's an Antonio Forrest group. Mm-hmm. I'm one of the moderators for that. 
I mean, basically, you name it, there's probably a group for it mm. as far as mm. children's books are concerned. So, and that's yeah. nice. Archive of our own, AO3. Yes. Yes, yes. Although I'm, I've never, I've never really been one for uh, fanfic and uh, mm. fillers. I do have all the, um, all the chalet fillers, but mm. only because you know they are school stories, and I have to have all school stories. Oh right. So, <laughs> I don't read them if I'm up. Oh but, no, no! I absolutely love the school stories, the, all the fillers, mm. fill-ins, and um, and I reread them as well because I've read the original EBD so often that. Yeah, me too. You know. I'm surprised the, the words haven't worn off the page from overreading. You know, mm. some of them are literally falling to pieces. One or two of my, but well, no, I have actually mostly replaced them with GGBs or um, hardbacks. Oh, it was my copy of Chalet School Fate. It was li- I had to do it a page at a time because it had completely fallen apart. Well, the Armadas are terrible. They, they always mm. were. Um, they they used a very inferior sort of glue, I think, and uh, yeah open them up and they'd fall apart mm. Mm. i didn't ever buy armadas originally because i'm from the generation where they didn't exist right so if you wanted brent dyer, you bought the hardback so you didn't have the you didn't have brent dyer mm. but um i did buy um Shall I say school fate the second half of genius yes Charlie school fate yeah yeah i've got that i still got that because that's got that extra chapter although there's a bit of controversy about whether it was actually written by Brent Dyer. It's tricky. Because mm. it could mm. have been Phyllis Matthewman. Mm. Uh, some people think that um, that Reunion was uh, not really. The, so the, um, the last one. Um, Prefects. Prefects of the Shire School was, was uh, mostly Matthewman. Oh, okay. But nobody can prove it one way or the other. No. So. No, I might so. go back and rewrite, reread it with fresh eyes, though, in that case. Mm. There's even more EBGisms in, in those last two or three than than in the earlier ones there's a wonderful one where i think it's it is prefects where the lower forms are going out for walks accompanied by the prefects this is the one where um uh they come across a, a snake which is oh yes attack. and um that's redheads Len- isn't it that's redheads because i thought that might be a cool literary trick of ebds in yeah. that you know you think the snake's dead but is it really like the whole redheads thing that's going on yeah oh, clever with the gang yeah. yeah but i think it might not a bit anyway in prefect it's definitely in prefect oh, okay. where no 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 no, not the snake this is a where um one of the forms going up for the walkers lower 4a mm. and lower 4a come across a, a stream it's a very nice stream very hot day so they just paddle across it an upper 4A come out the other side. Oh, wow. They've been transformed by the stream. Absolutely. Gone up a whole year. <laughs> yes. I mean, you have to get fond of the EBD-isms because otherwise they would drive you mad. Yeah, I that's feel. absolutely right. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. The only thing that always ha- always did drive me slightly mad was her overuse, wrong use of literally. I remember that article and the illustrations yes. of people literally uh, my... swimming in butter. That was fab. That's right. That's no, right. My... No, it was, was it cakes? No, no, that's right. That was one of them. Yes. Cakes literally swimming in butter. Cakes. No, the, the um, I can't remember what was literally swimming in butter. Something was. Uh, the cakes were had literal mountains of whipped cream. Right. And they were, their hopes were literally rolling in money as well. That's right. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, my sister I remember that did one. the illustrations yeah they were superb remember that and yeah, the um I've... the mute the kennel made nan parody of the postman pat theme tune as well so whenever i see my copy of kennel made nan i get that tune in my head because <laughs> yeah. of it. i know and of course you did you did the index 
I did do the index, yes. And, yeah, oh, only for uh, the first 30 issues. Yeah, I, I did the index. I, I think I did the index for everything mm. else. That is, by the way, on the Folly website. So anyone who wants to look anything up can do that there. Oh, all right. Find out exactly what issue that it was in. Yes. 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 Yeah. I've, I've never done any other indexing work before or since. That was my one foray into indexing. It was a very, very difficult thing to index as mm. well. Yes, I know. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, I know. <laughs> it was fine. It was good to do my luckily, well, luckily, you started the whole thing off. So when I was adding to it, it was very easy because you'd already established all yes. the... Yes. Uh, yes, that does make it easier, I suppose. Yes, fair enough. Exactly. Those dear days, did you have a favourite, favourite bit of folly? A favourite issue or a favourite page type page? Yes, um, yes. Well, my favourite my favorite page was always the back page, right. where we always put something really, really silly. Like Ken on um, Yes. Uh, so parodies um, of poems or silly puns on titles, mm. that sort of thing. So overall, that would always be my, my mm. absolute favourite mm. thing. Mm. Uh, it was always quite fun to do as well. My least favourite thing, uh, after a bit, was the chalet corner. No other reason except that it got more and more difficult to find good stuff to put in the chalet mm. corner. Originally, it was absolutely fine because in the early days of Folly, I suppose more or less every person who took it and who who subscribed mm. was a, a Brent Dyer fan. But it, as it sort of branched out that was not necessarily true mm. so people would send me uh, stuff that theoretically for the shelley corner and it, it would be absolutely awful I, I couldn't put it in mm. or they would send me stuff that could go in but was either too long or too short so it wasn't the shelley corner itself it was simply the difficulty of um of, of getting sued from about folly 30 or so i suppose mm. 30 I think it's stopped, something didn't like it? that. Chalet Corner, didn't you discontinue it in the end? Yes, we did. Yes, yeah. Uh, we we had to because we just weren't getting the stuff. Thank you very much, Sue. You're very welcome. It was lovely talking about folly. Lovely seeing you again. That was lovely. Thank you so much to Sue for talking to me. Folly was a great place to discuss EBD and books for young people in general, and you can get a flavour of it from its website, follymagazine.co.uk. One of the articles you'll find there is The Literal Brent Dyer, which we mentioned in our conversation. Sue also mentioned Seven Stories, the National Centre for Children's Books in Newcastle-upon-Tyne, and you can find out more about this at sevenstories.org.uk. You have been listening to Top Hole, written and presented by Deborah Lofus, production and music by Kit Lofus. Episode transcripts are available at topholepodcast.wordpress.com and links to the website we mentioned are also in the show notes. You can email us at topholepodcast at gmail.com. Tophole is a Lofus Towers production. <laughs>